I'm Sushma Raman, and you're listening to Justice Matters. In today's episode, I'm pleased to introduce Wade Henderson, the interim president of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund, organizations that he previously led for more than 20 years. The Leadership Conference is a major civil and human rights coalition working towards the goal of a more open and just society, building an America as good as its ideals. Wade, thank you so much for joining us today. Sushma, thank you for the invitation to be with you. So before we get started, I'm wondering if you can share for our audience a little bit about your background, your life, where you are from, and what attracted you to work around social and racial justice. I was born in Washington, D.C., and I actually live in my old neighborhood, which is now gentrifying and becoming a very chic place to live, but for many years, it was not. I am an individual who transitions the period of segregation. I spent the first 15 years of my life in a fully segregated world. And then I happened to be a part of the change that I had hoped to see come to America. And it was the experience of growing up in segregated Washington that motivated me to pursue a career of social justice. And that's what I have been fortunate enough to pursue my entire life. What really motivated me uh, to become a lawyer and to pursue a social justice career were, of course, the circumstances of life in segregated Washington. And while I don't have, fortunately, horrific experiences to talk about in terms of how segregation affected me, it was the small indignities, the humilities of uh, growing up as an African-American in a segregated, largely white world that motivated me to become a lawyer and to seek to change the system that I chafed at as a young man. I had an incident when I was a junior high school student that really stuck with me and really highlighted the indignities of growing up in segregation. And that too was a motivator. I uh, was graduating from junior high school. I had a job as a paper boy in Washington and had earned enough money to buy a suit of clothes. It was the first suit of clothes I was buying myself and had gotten instructions from my father, my sizes, all the information I would need to make a wise purchase. And I had gone to what was then the most exclusive department store in town. And I'm walking around as if I know what I'm doing, and I'm looking at clothes on the rack. And I notice that I'm being stared at by uh, some of the uh, personnel of the store, but I didn't think anything of it. And uh, I picked a suit of clothes. I had measured it correctly. It was the proper sizing. And I walked over to the salesman, and I said, look, I uh, need to know where your dressing room is. I need to try on this suit. And the salesman looked at me incredulously and said with a sense of irony, you know, Negroes can't try on clothes here at Garfickles, and he states the store. And I was so humiliated by the moment. Uh, There were several people in the store who burst out laughing, who burst out laughing. And I was so humiliated by that moment that I literally dropped the suit and ran from the store. 
And when I ran from the store and got outside, I was angry with myself because I had failed to confront this indignity in a way that I felt was appropriate and should have been it should have been done. And I didn't do it. And I was so furious about that experience, so angry. It stuck with me in ways that today seem almost inexplicable. But that humiliation said to me, look, no, no more of this. I can't stand it. And I became a critic of the moment and the era. And I became a disciple of... (laughs) an activist in town. His name was Julius Hobson. And Julius Hobson became the founder of the, one of the founders of the Statehood Party in Washington, pushing for DC to become a state. I was in high school with his son and Julius Hobson Jr. And I so admired him because this gentleman had such dignity, but also such direct force of challenging the system in many different ways. And I felt that he was an example of someone I could emulate in helping to challenge the system myself. Now, I came of age um, at a time when uh, the world, and particularly the United States, was going through a powerful transformation. I attended the March on Washington, and I went defying, actually, my parents' uh, desire because They were fearful that the march on Washington would become a violent exercise. They had been warned by federal and city officials that the march on Washington would be dangerous. Unlike anything that had ever happened in Washington before, all of the liquor stores in the city were closed and there were National Guardsmen that were invited to come into uh, the town to protect the great institutions. Unlike, by the way, at the insurrection of January 6th of this year, the National Guard was invited to come and to uh, sort of police the city along with uh, regular police force. And yet, for me, it was important. I was 15. And I thought that, you know, I needed to be here. I needed to be at the march myself. And I I rode my bike from my home down to uh, the Ellipse in Washington. And I was so dazzled by the numbers of people who had come from all over the country. I was so taken by the dignity with which these marches, mostly black, but not entirely. This was a a more multiracial audience than one might think in 1963. And you could feel change in the air. You could feel a sense that uh, the people who were there were exuding a dignity that would ultimately affect the entire movement. And that inspired me. Uh, I finished uh, high school in 66 and I went to college and I was there at a time of this incredible awakening in the black community. And it compelled me to go forward at each step to learn more and to immerse myself into the change that I wanted to see come about. So here we are today. We are looking at a year we left behind us with the pandemic, with uh, struggles for racial justice, an election that was fought and contested, and then the events of January 6th. So we're at this particular pivot point, and I wanted to ask from your perspective, 
some important policy developments that could advance the cause of racial justice. And I'll start with the topic of reparations. Of course, the struggle for reparations has been with us since the time of slavery and its aftermath. But I'm wondering if you can comment on whether you see the current moment as a tipping point for this movement, and if not, what it would take to ensure the dignity and the livelihoods and the economic and other rights of African-Americans. So the, the demonstrations of the summer and fall, the emergence of Black Lives Matter as a, a transformative agent for change is really quite significant, and we need to recognize that. And one of those bright spots was the somewhat multiracial dimension of the demonstrations which occurred this past summer, a multiracial, multigenerational dimension in which Americans from various communities awakened to the profound injustice of systemic racism in American life. The fact that we are having conversations about how we as Americans address these issues is profound and it has to be recognized in a positive way for what it means. Now, having said all of that, the insurrection of January 6th stands out as a sort of punctuation point on the four-year tenure of our previous president, Donald Trump. And what we saw that day at our nation's capital was unlike anything we had seen in modern times. We saw an attempted coup d'etat that sought to overturn a democratically elected government by a majority will of the people using a long-term game plan of disinformation that has had a profound impact on how we see ourselves and how the world sees us. What we learned from that moment is that America remains a country at war with itself. And as the great Mississippi author William Faulkner once observed, the past is never dead. It's not even past. The fact that we saw on the afternoon of January 6th, two things that for me captured the essence of that moment. One was a young man, a young white man, walking through the halls of the Capitol with a fully unfurled Confederate flag, waving it as if it rightly belonged there, recognizing as I did as a student of history, that the Confederate flag had never been exposed in the United States Capitol, even during the height of the Civil War. The second incident was a report given by an African-American police officer, Capitol Hill police officer, who at the end of the day was overheard talking to one of his colleagues with tears streaming down his face saying that I was called the N-word today at least 15 times by the rioters, the insurrectionists who came to the Capitol. And knowing that the context of this insurrection had been an effort to overturn election results from communities in Wisconsin, like Milwaukee, Detroit, Michigan, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 
Atlanta, Georgia, but more importantly, in each area, black voters had made the difference. Voters of color had made the difference in the election results that were the subject of contention. What that told me was that race remains a central issue in American life, and that the struggle for the soul of this country is really a struggle to reconcile the inability to address a fundamental problem with American democracy, which traces its roots back to slavery as one of our founding institutions. This is who we are. So for those who say, oh my God, they lament January 6th and say, oh, this is such an aberration. This is not who we are as Americans. No, no, we don't, that's not us. It is us. It is who we are. And there is much history in this country. Many violent incidents, the over 5,000 lynchings that took place in this country between 1865 and the 1960s that make it clear this is who we are. So it is in that context that the racial reckoning that I talked about earlier is having an impact on who we are and where we are. You asked about reparations and why is that important? Well, it's important because unless we confront who we are and the circumstances, the truth of how we arrived at today's conditions, including the systemic discrimination that continues to affect life chances of black Americans, brown Americans, others of color, new immigrants. Unless we ultimately confront those circumstances, then we will find that we are doomed to repeat them. Reparations is not at this uh, term an endpoint. What the current legislation would seek to accomplish is to establish a national commission that would study the impact of reparations were they to be honored. That is a principle that is especially important to acknowledge as a nation. You know, today just happens to be, just happens to be the Japanese American Day of Remembrance. We are recording this podcast on the day of Japanese American remembrance, which lifts up the over 120,000 Japanese Americans that were interned during World War II and who were denied the basic rights of citizenship because of their national origin and because of the public perception of who we are. The American government ultimately acknowledged that travesty and paid reparations to the surviving Japanese Americans who were interned during World War II. It is an honorable element of British common law. For every wrong, there is a remedy. And that principle overlays America's long overdue examination of what is owed to the previously enslaved race in this country for the opportunities that we have contributed to in building the America of today. 
There is also a complementary piece that should go along with the study of reparations, and that is a commission that Congresswoman Barbara Lee, one of the consciences of the Congress, has proposed, which would establish a national commission on truth, racial healing, and transformation. Both the National Commission on Truth, Racial Healing, Transformation, as well as reparations are complementary. They need to be enacted together because our country needs a deeper dive into who we are, how we got here, and where we're going as a country. And because we are so ahistoric as a people, because we don't understand our own history, much less of who we are, we are bound to forget it. Later this year, the country will commemorate the 1921 Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre, in which over 300 African Americans and the most prosperous black business community in the country were destroyed and largely forgotten but for a few of the activists from Tulsa who have demanded that it be kept alive and be discussed as a topic for atonement in this country. We have already forgotten the coup d'etat that took place in Wilmington, North Carolina. I was reminded of it, and by the way, that was in 1899, I believe. I was reminded of it when we experienced the failed coup d'etat of January 6th. You know, we have had experiences in our history in which a democratically elected government was overthrown by a white supremacy and secessionist mob. These things have happened before. So without a deeper understanding of our own history and how we got here, we are bound in some likelihood to repeat it. And I think the study of reparations is an important part of that reckoning of America and coming to terms with our own history. Another component of the racial reckoning over the past year, but really one that draws on historical roots, is the movement around defunding the police. Given the incidents of police violence and killings targeting Black people, as well as the current moment where President Biden has said no to defunding the police, I'd like to ask you about how progress can best be made given that the history of policing in this country, as is the case with so many other institutions, is really drawn on the history of enslavement and the post-slavery period. How can progress best be made? Is it at the margins, through reform, or do we need some complete overhaul of the system? Well, I think we need significant reform. But let me back up for just a moment to say that, and it may be generational from my perspective, uh, but I reject the term defund the police. I'm not sure that it means literally defunding the entire police constabulary and uh, leaving society without a policing element. Now, that, I think, uh, goes entirely too far. I certainly think that some of the funding and investments that police departments throughout the country have relied on in times past need to be challenged, examined, and in some instances stopped. For example, police departments should not receive surplus military equipment 
that allows them to approach circumstances within their own community as if they were establishing a green zone in Baghdad, Iraq. You know, they do not need sophisticated missile launchers and other uh, equipment uh, for a military-style assault uh, that should be part of the routine uh, production of uh, policing equipment in communities. I don't think that's appropriate. I think that some of the funding that police receive that is used throughout in a general way uh, to um, uh, support their activity needs to be disaggregated from criminal enforcement and devoted to mental health. I mean, many instances we hear about are of police performing routine duties that really should fall uh, to another branch of government. And unfortunately, because they are trained to be, from a military standpoint, confrontational, uh, that needs to be examined. So, no, I, I, I reject the notion that we should, quote, defund the police, meaning taking all monies that have been assigned to police departments and shifting them elsewhere, leaving cities without police forces. I, I know too many communities of African-Americans, Latinos, and others that welcome some role for the police. But I think there is a fundamental difference between uh, supporting an appropriate role for police and the over-policing that we have seen uh, throughout our recent history. Keep in mind, it is police encounters with young people of all races that often determine whether a young person will obtain a criminal record from the outset. Reforms take time, but this moment in time is compelling a deeper and closer look at how we reform our criminal justice system. I'm very pleased that Congress has undertaken that review and the George Floyd Police Reform Act is a very important piece of the discussion. The effort to undo the impact of qualified immunity in which police officers are shielded from consequences of their action when they violate basic laws and human rights provisions, it seems to me is long overdue. And so, no, I don't consider that defunding the police. But I do think significant reforms are necessary. And I think Congress has gone is going about that business as we speak. I think it's an important consideration. And I think it could only come about because of the circumstances that we described at the outset of our call. So we've touched on the incidents of January 6th a couple of times in our conversation. And these events were deeply disturbing to many of us in the United States, but have also been closely watched by people around the world. Uh, so how do we ensure accountability with respect to people who participated in the events in the Capitol, as well as public officials who helped incite the rioting? Well, first of all, I'm disappointed that the Republican Senate chose not to hold President Trump accountable for sparking the insurrection of January 6th, even though an incredible case to that effect was made by the House impeachment managers who presented their case to the Senate. I strongly believe that President Trump 
should have been held accountable. He should have been not just impeached, but convicted of the allegations that were brought against him. And I felt that the abdication of that responsibility, the unwillingness to hold him accountable is complicity. And I think that the Senate Republican element is complicitous in the events of uh, January 6th. Obviously, there are individuals who stand out uh, for their extraordinary hypocrisy and uh, feigned commitment uh, to American democracy. I would single out Ted Cruz. I would single out uh, Josh Hawley. These, these are senators who embraced Trump's big lie and continue, I should say, to propound that, that lie that undercuts the integrity of American democracy in the worst way imaginable. So I, I do feel there has been an abdication of responsibility as an elected official to the American people. I also believe, however, that there are additional remedies that are being pursued. And while some of them are not related to the incidents of January 6th, for example, the ongoing criminal investigation of the Trump enterprises taking place by the Attorney General of New York, for example, uh, that predated the insurrection of January 6th, I think more of that is necessary. I think there has to be a further demand for accountability. I also believe that President Trump should be denied the right to uh, hold federal office in the future. There is a 14th Amendment remedy. I believe Section 3 of the 14th Amendment would allow an individual who supported insurrection to be held accountable for that. And I think should he choose to run again for office, that needs to be invoked. I think because of the challenges facing our country today, I'm not sure that more time of the kind that we have seen through the impeachment process needs to be devoted to this, but I fully support the commission of inquiry that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is proposing to create, and I hope that will be a bipartisan body that will examine the elements of the insurrection and in a report make clear how we got to where we are. I also think that those individuals who can be identified and having been involved in the insurrection in a direct way, who were there at the Capitol, who uh, either uh, you know participated in the assault on police officers and others, or who breached the Capitol and went inside, I think they need to be held fully accountable. I'm very pleased that technology is being used by the Department of Justice and by various several offices to prosecute the individuals who participated in that insurrection. But even there, you are seeing the elements of disparate treatment based on race that have to be considered, you know, just totally blatant and offensive. One woman, for example, who was an insurrectionist, petitioned the court so she could go uh, in effect on a junket in Mexico. And uh, the judge permitted her to do so, contending that she would report back uh, to uh, uh, her trial date, so it was unnecessary to seek additional penalty. I would dare say, had she been Black, that would have been impossible. 
I would also say that if the racial makeup of the crowd that rushed and stormed the Capitol on January 6th had been anything other than white, there would have been more recorded deaths that day than we could possibly imagine. And I don't think anyone in this country, regardless of race, would argue differently. We know that the insurrectionists were treated differently because they are white. So, uh, you know, my fear is that these are challenges that we as a nation face. And again, until we confront them openly and honestly, we will continue to have kind of uh, disparities in treatment that we see today. So let's pivot to the global stage. What should be the global priorities with respect to human rights for the Biden administration? Because we are again seeing the need for a reset of relationships with world leaders, with institutions of global governance, um, with institutions like the International Criminal Court, and a very complex multipolar world. So given this shifting landscape over the last several years, What should be some of the global human rights priorities for the administration? I am pleased that uh, President Biden has chosen to reestablish American engagement, the rest of the world, uh, in a number of concrete ways that I think uh, are uh, important and go beyond mere symbolism. I think uh, the president's decision to uh, rejoin the Human Rights Council Uh, where our voice is incredibly important uh, and where we need to be a player on the global stage, uplifting uh, human rights principles, it seems to me have been uh, uh, underscored by that effort. His decision to modify America's immigration uh, policies, uh, but specifically to reject uh, the treatment of children that we saw Uh, by President Trump in the cruelty of separating uh, children from their parents as a way of discouraging uh, migrants from coming to the United States. It was disgusting. And the treatment of children in and of itself by putting them in conditions, subhuman conditions in detention uh, was an inherent violation of human rights and needs to be put in check and called out for what it is or what it was. Uh, The isolationist approach that we have taken in abandoning uh, allies that we have supported in the past and leaving their fate uh, to the hostile uh, regimes in which they find themselves, the Kurds in Turkey, for example, or uh, emerging voices in Saudi Arabia that would seek to challenge that regime, the war in Yemen. Uh, Those things are concrete examples of the improper use of American power in the past and this president's decision and commitment uh, to addressing those in the future. Recognizing international conventions to which we are already a signatory and have not been uh, faithful in our deliberations. So the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, the Convention on Civil and Political Rights, uh, these international agreements Uh, require a a more robust uh, involvement than we have had uh, certainly in the last four years. And hopefully uh, President Biden's commitment to restoring them will be important. 
his willingness to engage in future international agreements. An example, the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. Almost every country in the world is a signatory uh, to that human rights treaty on behalf of people with disabilities. It's modeled after America's uh, uh, Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, it, and the international community took what we did as a country, framed it broadly and applied it internationally and has gotten the majority of world communities to embrace it. And yet we as a community have turned our backs on it. Uh, those kinds of, of, of blatant uh, disregard for the importance of human rights undercuts our influence in the world and tarnishes tarnishes our uh, posture and stature as the world's uh, most important representative democracy. Uh, I hope that uh, the United States, recognizing the importance of human rights and its association with what we do, uh, will help to uh, really restore uh, some of the tarnished luster uh, that uh, we now experience because of the last four years. And I'm so pleased that this commitment to regaining our stature in the world is, uh, is coming out of this administration. So before we wrap up, I have two questions to ask you, Wade. I'm wondering if you can share your insights and recommendations for the next generation and for people who just want to get involved in making their communities and society a better place. Like, where does one begin? And secondly, what gives you hope for the future? Mm. Actually, those, uh, <laughs> those are two great questions. And the answer, um, interestingly enough, may be the same for both. Young people give me hope. The youth of this country and the youth of the world give me hope. The history of transformative change in this country uh, was carried on the backs of young people. Uh, we can think of instances where the youth of this country who have been courageously speaking truth to power for generations continue to do so. They continue to raise their voices in defense of an America as good as its ideals. They are people who believe in American values. They have embraced the story of what those values mean both to themselves and to the country and globally. And they are attempting to reconcile the contradiction between what we say we are and what we are in actuality. And they are attempting to perfect our union. They are attempting to perfect the America of today. Young people give me hope. I wouldn't presume to tell them where they should use their voices and influence. They know and they do. I certainly know, however, that being true to oneself, being true to the values around which you were raised and organized, being true to uh, a vision of what this country and world can be, inspires me. It encourage me, encourages me to continue pursuing the goals for change. I'm so impressed with the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm so impressed with young people committed to climate change. 
I'm so impressed by the young people seeking to enact reasonable and modest gun reforms uh, in this country. I'm so impressed by students on college campuses who express concern for cafeteria workers and those who do the jobs, the hard jobs for which there is little recognition and inadequate pay. I am very much impressed uh, by those who are concerned about the rampant growth of technology and a desire to avoid it. So uh, I think young people and this new generation of leaders that are emerging hold many of the keys to our future. I hope they remain true to themselves. I hope they remain true to their commitment to the values that we share in common. I think at the end of the day, that is our best hope. Thank you so much for joining us today, Wade. Thank you for the invitation to be with you. I'm Sushma Rahman, Executive Director of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. You can listen to other episodes of Justice Matters on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more about our work at the Center at our website, www.carcenter.hks.harvard.edu. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. This is Justice Matters. Thank you for listening.